You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. Turn in your copy of God's Word then to 2 Chronicles 5. 2 Chronicles 5, you'll find it in your Old Testament, kind of right in the middle, just before the Psalms, as we uh, come back to uh, uh, this, this, uh, really not coming back, but continuing the series, uh, Convinced of His Goodness. And I pray, you know, we've been in this now five weeks or so. Can anyone say, like, man, the needle has moved more vertical in my conviction that, yes, God is good and does good. Does it say that? Is that true of you? Yeah, praise God for that. And just pray that even uh, throughout the entirety of our lives, we will continue to grow as we see that, man, God is so good. And really up to this point, we've camped uh, in the New Testament or in the Old Testament only. We'll get to the New Testament here in a, in a couple weeks, but we're doing so to anchor our New Testament hope in these Old Testament realities on this uh, solid foundation. And really, I want to just counter that mistaken notion that exists out there. Maybe you're here or have been here at some point, or maybe not, but where we see the Old Testament, like where God is just bloodthirsty and angry with everyone. And yet, hopefully, you've been able to see that, no, from the beginning, God is good and does good. From the moments of creation, He is good and does good. And even as sin entered the world, it didn't thwart that. It didn't have an effect on God in the same way that it uh, has an effect on us in hindering our experience of His goodness. Yes, there were uh, those moments of affliction cause us to question God's goodness. But even in these moments, God is still good and does good. And it's the goodness that existed in the Garden of Eden. Why? Because God was present. He was there walking with Adam and Eve. And the real tragedy of the fall of sin entering the world was them being cast out of God's presence, creating this gap in the relationship between humans and God and this breach that was created. And so the rest of our our Bible then, and even our own experience now on this side of the cross, is this grand uh, story of God's work to be near His people, to transcend, to be present in the midst of His people. And even in the Old Testament, the purpose behind all the sacrificial system that was set up, remember this back from Exodus and Leviticus, all the laws and the feasts and the rituals in in the tabernacle really have as this end goal, God's presence in the midst of His people. On this side of Christ and the sending of the Holy Spirit. What is the end goal? God's presence in the midst of His people, a a connection in relationship. And so at all the huge moments in uh, biblical history, Israel's history, and these times are are really uh, these moments of God drawing near, of God being with His people. So that's why we come to 2 Chronicles 5 this morning. Because it's a significant moment in Israel's history. It's the building of Solomon's temple. A permanent dwelling place for God has been constructed. And can you guess 
what they are singing at this moment in Israel's history. Any guesses, any takers, any brave ones? Some of you already looked at it, so you know what it, what it says. How about we read it? How about we read it, and you will see it for yourself. Second Chronicles 5, I'll read it. You follow along, and we'll see what they're singing when we get to the end. Thus all the work that Solomon did for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated, and stored the silver, the gold, and all the vessels in the treasuries of the house of God. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled before the king at the feast that is in the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came and the Levites took up the Ark and they brought up the Ark, the tent of meeting and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The Levitical priests brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were before the ark sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim made a covering above the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, for all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves without regard to their divisions, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, and Jaduthan, their sons and kinsmen, arrayed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. It was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Now this is God's word for God's people. What are they singing here at this uh, moment in Israel's history? For he is good for his endures forever that's right how many of you guessed that right some of y'all some of you didn't some of you just looked at it but now we know this theme that we've seen over and over for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever that even on this day in Israel's history which we'll see why this is significant in a moment they are singing this song but what is it that about this song and on this day that we can conclude then? Well, I think it is this. It's here on the screen and in your notes, the central conclusion of all the activity and the lyrics in which they are singing is this, that where God's glory is, his goodness is at work. Where God's glory is, his goodness is at work. And these two things are linked together as we see over and over throughout our, our Bible. Or to say it another way, that where God is present, 
where he is active, where he is present, his goodness is at work. These two things always go. If God is good and does good, then where he is, his goodness is the active force. And so if we want good in our lives, we need to be where God is. Now, in this moment in human history, like I said, Solomon is king. He's the third king in Israel's united kingdom. Who was the first king of Israel? He was king Saul and then King David, who was Solomon's dad. He's now the king, and the Ark of the Covenant, that symbol of God's presence, is being brought to the temple on this day. For years prior to this, throughout David's reign, it had existed in the tent. Now, there's a big day. We looked at this as we began, actually, in Psalm 106 and 1 Chronicles 16, where David is recovering the tent and, or the ark and bringing it to the tent. And there was this, they were singing the same song here. And now, decades later, as Solomon builds this spectacular temple, something that David wanted to do, but what did God tell him? You don't get to do it. You don't get to do it. Your son will do it. And now, true to God's word, it's happened. And it's a joy-filled day in Israel, this spectacular temple. You can look it up online. There's all kinds of like, you know, people have tried to give a rendering of what you see described here. And, you know, it is very ornate, but the ark now has come. His presence is made visible in this, uh, uh, in this part of the service through this cloud, as it often was throughout the Old Testament. Remember the wandering in the wilderness of Israel. How did God presently, how did he lead them through the wilderness by day? By a cloud and in the evening through a pillar of fire. And so God's presence, his glory there is leading them in the same way. And in this case here, he is there, he's present, the cloud comes and what do they all do? They hit the deck. They could not stand him as they fall on their faces in this familiar anthem, singing of God's glory. Why? Or singing of God's goodness. Why? Because his glory was there, filling the temple. Where God's glory is, his goodness is at work. It'll happen again. This is like the beginning of the service. They're marching the Ark of the Covenant there. The glory of the Lord shows up. They fall to their faces. There's loud worship happening, but it continues on actually in the service. We're just camped in uh, chapter 5 here, but I want you to see this here because the service goes on in 2 Chronicles 6. For after all this happens, then King Solomon stands up to pray. He prays to bless the people and then also to, uh, uh, to dedicate the, the temple and to ask God's favor and his blessing on them. And so just go to, to verse 40. I want you to see how this ends here, really towards the end of the, the service. In 2 Chronicles 6, pick it up in verse 40 and just hear the end of his prayer, how he lands the plane. It says this, Now, O my God, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer of this place. He's acknowledging God's presence and his activity. And now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation and let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. He ends here appealing to rejoicing in God's goodness and asking God to remember the covenant. Remember what you said to to David, that your love would be on him, that you would meet with him here, your steadfast love. And and it's happening. 
Now, just pick it up in, in chapter 7. They shouldn't put the chapter breaks here. They do, but it's all continuing on. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, look at this. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. First, in, at the beginning of the service, in the cloud, now in what? In fire, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. Again, when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement, right? There's no lower, no more humble than you can get on the, on the pavement. And they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying or singing what? Again, here it is where God's glory is there. His goodness is at work. God is present. And the lyrics that leave their lips as they hit the deck in worship, acknowledging the goodness and loving kindness of God. How cool is this? Right? For where God is present, there his goodness is at work. We want God's goodness to be at work in our life, then we must be where God is. And I think we need to need some help making sense of all this. We don't live in Old Testament times, you know, especially as we think of the glory of God. We need to have a proper theology of glory. It's one of those words that get used all the time in, in, our, in our Bibles and in our own place. We glorify God as we give Him worship. We uh, lift Him high and adore Him. But what does this mean that He's being glorified here? We saw in, when we, as we've been in the Gospel of John as well and Sometimes things like this can lose their meaning. And so what's it being referred to, particularly in a passage like this? Well, listen to this quote from the author of Vertical Church. He describes the glory of God like this. He says, As heat is to fire, glory is to God. As wet is to water, glory is to God. As light is to bulb, glory is to God. Glory is what emanates from God. When someone or something evidences the reality of God's existence, that revealing is God's glory. We don't see God. We see the evidence that he has been at work. We see his glory. Glory is the supernatural signature where God has been at work, end quote. See, it's what is left behind. It, is the, uh, it is, is the effect of where God has been. We can't see him, but we can see his activity. We feel the wet. We feel the heat of fire, the wet of water. The, uh, we experience the light of a bulb, and the same is true when God shows up here, present in a cloud and present by a fire, but his goodness is what we experience, his good work. And now we see this all throughout our, our scriptures, right? Like I said, a few weeks ago, we were in Genesis 1 and 2. God is creating. He is there present. And what is the result? Everything he creates is good. It's good. It's good. And this is on repeat, even in our, uh, in our Old Testament, even after sin enters into the world. What's fascinating, too, is like you think about in the book of Exodus, particularly in Exodus chapter 33, you have there in Exodus, like God's deliverance of his people from Egyptian slavery, 
right? They're, they're, they're set free. They see God do all these awesome things. They get into the wilderness. They go to uh, Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. Uh, Moses goes up the mountain. He meets with God. God gives him the Ten Commandments, puts him on the tablets of stone, which are here in the ark, and he gives him all the, uh, the instructions for how to build the tabernacle and all the priestly rituals and things like that. And while he's up there meeting with God, how does Aaron, his brother, lead the people down at the bottom of the mountain? They're all getting restless, and what do they do? Yeah, ugh, an ugly moment in, in uh, Israel's history, right? In chapter, Exodus 32, they're at the base of the mountain making this golden calf. They all put their earrings and all their gold stuff, and out comes this. And when they get confronted, it's so funny because it's like, you know, Moses comes down. He's like, what have you done? Aaron's like, I don't know. Everyone just threw their golden, and this came out of the fire. I don't know how it happened, right? It's like when you're confronting your kids on something, they're like, hey, how did this happen? Well, I don't know. It just like came out and like, this is a mess. This is all broken. I don't know how it happened, right? <laughs> and so God is rightly angry at this. They have given glory to a calf that rightly deserved, uh, was reserved for God. God's like, there's consequences for this. I can't go before you. There, there has to be, uh, there has, like, there, this, this is no good. And Moses stands in place. He mediates for uh, Israel. And he's like, God, you have to come with us. You, you have to come with us. I actually, I want you to see this. Turn over to Exodus 33. I want you to see this little section of scripture. Exodus is the second book in your Bible. If you just go back to the beginning, you'll find Genesis and then Exodus. And again, go to Exodus 33. And we'll pick it up in verse 17. No, 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 let's go back a little farther. Exodus 33. Let's, let's pick it up in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, so he's, remember how he's like, he's, he's, he's mediating, he's praying, God, like, don't, don't, don't leave us out here in the wilderness. And Moses says, Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you will not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. So Moses is like, he, he's treading on a, a shaky ground. He's trying to bargain with God. Like, you, 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 you're sending me, I'm going to go, but you haven't told me who. Uh, you know me, but I want to know you more, Right? Uh, consider, how, how can I, I know you? And God replies in verse 14, and he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Now, one thing, side note, that's incredible, right? And that's like the whole point of following Jesus, right? It's the whole point of following God. In his presence, rest is in his presence. Rest is where he is. We want to be where he is. Like he, you think of like the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Uh, go, therefore, make disciples in the promise of session. I'll be with you when you do this. We can be in his presence. We know, like, he'll give you rest, right? But Moses, verse 15, replies back, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Right? Moses is saying, God, if you don't go with us in the promised land, I don't want to go there. 
If you're not there, then I don't want to be there. I want to be in your presence. It's your presence that makes uh, uh, God's people distinct. Right? Uh, apart from every other nation, beyond the rules, the, the, you know, the government, society, and things like that, the culture, what makes God's people distinct is the fact that God meets with them. The same, same is true today. What makes this gathering of God's people any different than a town hall meeting or some other you know, association meeting that you could go to? It's not because I'm here. It's not because you're here. It's because God's here. Because he gathers with us, his glory present, his good work. As we open up his word, as we sing to him about him, as we pray, as we take communion, as we talk about Jesus and the gospel and his goodness, God dwells with us. He's distinct. That's what makes us. And Moses knows this. I don't want to go. I don't want to be left alone. We're only here because you got us in this place, and we're not going if you're not going there. Look at verse 17. What is, how is all this wrapped up? The Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. Like, you know me. I, now I want, I want, can I have a supernatural signature that you are here and at work? See that? How does God say? Or how does God answer? And he said, I will make all my goodness. You see the link? Where God's glory is, where he is present, what is at work? What is seen? What is visible in our life? His goodness. I'll make it pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, or literally Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God is inserting his, his autonomy. He's not being coerced into this. He's not, I, will, I, I have free will. We always question, like, do we have free will? Do we have not? Well, God's like, let's just be clear on one thing. I have free will. I will show grace. I will show mercy. I will show this to whoever I will. But he said, you cannot see my face. It's God speaking. For man shall not see me and live. Right? And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of a rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. What's, what's cool about this passage, George? Right? Well, one, it's the connection. God, Moses asking, can I see your glory? And God saying, you can see my goodness. You can see my goodness at work and see, here's the thing. We can't see God's presence, but we can see his providence and the details that he works out in your life and the good things that he is doing, even in the midst of tragedy, even in the midst of hard things, we can see God's providence to put certain people in our life or to recall scripture to uh, our mind or working things out for our good. We can't see his uh, face, but we do see his effect. His good work is obvious and marvelous, really, when we have eyes to see it. His good work to save us, to sanctify us, to redeem us, to turn us around from the pit. And this is what fallen the Lord is all. Life has always been about being in His presence, dwelling with God, being in relationship with Him. But how often do we actually live as if that's the reality? That God is present and at work in our lives. Or are we living as if he's absent or at least distant and uncaring about the things happening in our life? How do we do this, you know? How do we live as if God is actually, uh, you know, present and, and not like in a, some imaginary, like, you know, or, you know, childish, imaginary friend kind of way, 
But we do this in our worship services as we gather, you know, as we acknowledge God, as we sing to Him, about Him, as we pray, as it says God is, is here. But how do we continue to do this in our, in, in our small groups? As we live life together and discuss God's Word together and pray with and for one another as if God is actually, like He is present with us in our small groups or around your dinner table. As you meet and talk with your kids or as you're talking with your friends or even in the moments where you are alone, maybe you live alone or you have alone time in your drive knowing that, man, God, you are here and I invite you, I want to be more aware so I can see your goodness at work in my life and around me. You know, church, and, I, and, and, and so... Where are we going with this? How do we do this? How, how is this not just like some, you know, abstract thing? Well, I think that's where Second Chronicles 5 is actually helpful. You know, we've covered some ground here. We've gone back and forth. But come back to, to Second Chronicles 5. Because as we examine this closer, especially the first part of this worship service, as the ark is now coming to the temple it gives us some help about living more aware, more cognizant of his presence and thus experiencing his goodness at work. Now remember, the temple's been built. God has a permanent house of worship after generations of the temporary mobile movement and then in the tent and the temporary house there. It's like that moment in church planting life where they go from you know the mobile days of living back and forth and then in a leased space and then into like a permanent uh, uh, owned space and now, I know there are obvious differences to all that. This is all before Jesus came, who's the once-for-all sacrifice, but there's some foreshadowing that I think are helpful. There's some biblical principles at play here that we see, even in activity of, the, of 2 Chronicles 5, of what they're doing here and the feast that they're meeting and the sacrifices that are happening and the way that the people are singing. And so what, is, what can we glean from this? Well, here, write this down. God's goodness is at work among us when we remember our deliverance from sin. When we pause to remember God delivering us from sin, and like they're doing here in the temple in the time of worship, they're coming back. God's goodness is on display as they're remembering their deliverance of sin. Now, know, know what's happening here. Like Solomon has assembled all the leaders in Jerusalem at the strategic time on Israel's calendar. See there, he's assembled the elders, heads of household, leaders at a specific time in, in verse 3. They've taken the ark of, uh, out of the city of David, which is Zion. It's a, a, a part of, of Jerusalem. And they're now bringing it here to the temple on the temple mount on a specific time. All the men of Israel assembled before the king at the feast that is in the seventh month. Now, who knows our Old Testament feasts? So you find in like Leviticus 22 and 23. Which one's the feast that happens in the seventh month? It's also what they were, uh, what Jesus upends in John 7 and 8. Remember when we were there and Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He's like, turn everything on. It's the feast of what? Booths. That's right. Good job. You know your Old Testament history. It's the feast of booths or tabernacles, or we might say the feast of tents. It's just a different way. They're not like setting up, you know, like a kiosk booth that you find in like the mall hallways or whatever. Actually, malls are like a thing of the past. There used to be these things called malls that people went shopping at. (laughs) Uh, And in the hallways, they had booths. Not like that. 
tents. Think of it like tents. And so uh, Solomon is gathering them at this strategic time. And the Feast of Booze was really like this Woodstock-like camping festival uh, every year on Israel's calendar where all Israel descended upon Jerusalem, packed up your family, all the things you needed, and you camped in tents. Now, some of the kids are like, man, that'd be awesome. Like, everybody in church, everybody, like all my friends, and we get out of school for a week. And I mean, I guess it'd be kind of cool, but it, it, a lot of work and staying. This would be more like all of America descending upon uh, Washington, D.C. at July 4th to remember our deliverance from uh, British rule. Right? Chaos. Uh, like millions of people, and that's what's happened here. And like, it's... Hard to say what, I mean, I guess we could probably uh, figure it out or at least give a, a good guess as to how many people, but, you know, tons of people are gathered here at the strategic time where they are to remember when God set them free from their Egyptian slavery and they wandered around and all God did to protect and to provide for them and to meet with them, to be present in their midst. And like many things, they get distorted over time. They lose their meaning. It becomes more about the form than the function. It becomes more about all the logistics to camping. And it becomes more about all the things that we have to do. And if we don't do it, then God's going to be angry with us and all the things. And it totally loses the meaning. Or it gets forgotten altogether. These things at different times in Israel's history, they just forget to celebrate any of the stuff. But I think what Solomon is doing here is he's being strategic and gathering the people to recapture the meaning of this feast and to draw them back that they might remember God's faithfulness to deliver them out of slavery and into his presence. So God just didn't set Israel free and be like, hey, go, you know, go figure things out for yourself and turn them loose into the wilderness. But he had a destination. He had a purpose. It was to be, uh, they were to be delivered out of slavery and into the presence of God. That's what all of Exodus is all about. You know, as you think of our own life, as Christians, even now, we too have a testimony of God's deliverance, don't we? Of our deliverance out of sin's slavery. As Christ, our King and our Rescuer, saves us out of that. And what does He do? He brings us into His presence, and we then have the Holy Spirit who now lives inside of us. This is what the gospel, the good news is all about. This is as you are wrestling with being saved, as you're wrestling with following Jesus. Well, what is this all about? It involves a deliverance, a rescue from your sin, from yourself, and, and, uh, and, and being uh, in God's midst. of Now having a new way of living, a new way of thinking, a new way of feeling, a new way of deciding, a new way of obeying. Because we understand that God is at work in us. It's a testimony of the gospel. Literally the good news. The best work as we remember in communion. Like God's good work that we get to tell. And see, God is at work in us as we tell others our testimony. As we remember this in our own heart, yes, for our own good, as we rehearse the gospel daily and as we make it known to others. That's why uh, Paul will say in Romans 1.16, he opens his letter by, by saying this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, of the good news, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. To 
everybody. That's literally it's like to the like it was given through the Jews and to the world. Here, as we talk about God's good work through Christ to save us, there is a power in it. Why a power? Because God has said, "I'm here," and He uses this to bring others to Himself. They might not even do it in the moment. As you are talking about God's work in your life, his work to save you, and his ongoing work, as you just share these uh, stories like, hey, here's how God's been at work in my marriage. Here's how God has been at work in my parenting. Here's how God's been at work in my singleness. Here's how God's been at work in my business. Here's how God has been at work in my, you know, as I, I'm trying to parent my adult children or my young children or as I'm retired or wherever stage of life. As we tell this story, God gets the glory. He is there present and his goodness is on display. And so let this fuel our gospel fervency. It's not just like about, uh, you know, reciting canned gospel tract presentations. I'm like, wait, what do I have to say again? You know, just tell the story of God at work and see how he does it. Even if there's no immediate response there, you know, they don't fall on their faces, you know, hit the pavement and all that. Maybe there's moments like that, as glorious as they are, praise God for them. But if nothing else, he's doing a good work in your life as you remember what he has done to deliver you. And that's what's happening here. God is just bringing them to this. They are coming to this place because they are remembering collectively God's deliverance and all that happened there in the feast and the bringing of the ark and the, all the things, you know, the tent fabric and poles and the vessels and all that stuff that they're bringing up and now placing in there as they remember this. But it doesn't, it doesn't stop there. Because his goodness is also at work in us when we remember the cost of our deliverance or the cost of our salvation. See, it didn't, the deliverance, it didn't just happen. You think back to Israel's history. Their deliverance from Egypt wasn't cheap. Many lost their lives. Much livestock were slaughtered as God poured out those ten plagues, those ten judgments on Egypt in that time. Many, you know, innumerable lambs were slaughtered on the night of Passover and their blood painted over the doors so that the death angel would pass over the homes that did. And so to here, as they come to uh, this, uh, this moment in their history, as the ark is there, God's presence is amongst them. Look at verse 6. There is innumerable amount of sheep and oxen that are sacrificed. Does that compute to any of us in here? Can you just imagine the size of this herd? Like it's not as though they're like, you know, uneducated people and they don't know how to count. Like, well, we only have, you know, 10 fingers and 10, maybe 11 toes. And so we lost, like, it's, no, they seem to know how to count. Is it just hyperbole? No. I think it's an expression here to show us that really the innumerable cost that their salvation and our salvation took. You know, they're there to tell God we are sorry and we could do this over and over and over again. We could tell God thank you and thank you and it would still not ever be enough to like repay the, the great cost, the significant cost that it took to save Israel, to deliver them. 
They're, they're coming to this place. That now they're, they're bringing the ark into the temple. The cherubim are over. They're hovering it. The, the poles have to stick out the Holy of Holies because they can't go in there. But the cherubim are hovering over to the ark to, the, to veil the holiness of God, to shield it from the defilement of our sinfulness and the blood that was required. And even, too, as we think now, we're not in a sacrificial system. We can't, you know, like compute all this. You know, maybe some of you have been, you know, like around North Texas and around the feedlots and things. You know, you can smell them 10 miles before you actually see them. You come to these yards and you just see, like, cattle. You know, can't be counted. Surely somebody's got them counted. But as we think of Christ and really the you know, uh, the eternal weight of sin placed on this man so that we could be saved. As we remember this, we see his goodness at work in us. We see, man, that humbles us. That brings us low to the pavement as we see the goodness of God to save us. It's what we remember in communion. It's part of God's kindness and wisdom in giving us uh, this uh, ordinance to remember the beating that he took, his body broken, and his blood poured out for us. One man, one God-man taking on the sin of the world so that we, so his beloved, could be saved. As we remember this, man, this is this is so beautiful. That's why we come when we come to the Lord's table. We come both in you know in a somber tone and reflective tone, but also in a celebratory tone. And we come like remembering these things. If you go back and read First Corinthians eleven, which I read from uh, uh, earlier when we took communion, there that passage is actually couched in a very heavy warning. Because they had used it to make divisions now, and there's distinctions, yes. There's distinctions as we come between believer and unbeliever, but otherwise, this is not a reason to divide. This is a reason to unite. We rally around Christ's death on the cross. We proclaim this together as a, as a, as a community. And so as we come into this, we have to examine our life. And so he's like, some of you have come in, in an unworthy manner. There's even a warning, like you're reading, it's like some have even died because of this. You're like, holy moly, like this is serious. Because how could we, if we understand the great cost that Christ paid for us, why, you know, that should sober us up. How could we be hiding sin? How could we be living a life like this and, and when we understand what Christ did to save us? And get this, even in those moments of conviction, it's God's goodness at work in us. You see that? It's His grace, His goodness, as He's there present here as we're taking communion, remembering Him. As we think on the great cost, at moments like this, it's God's goodness, His grace poured out to, to remind us of what Jesus did on our behalf. This isn't just in moments of communion. Obviously, it's something that we do uh, together uh, here. But man, it's His grace when we submit, when we repent. And it's in these moments where He does it at communion or when you're driving down the road or in the quiet moments in the morning when you're spending time with the Lord, when the lyrics of a song hit you. 
You can sing then, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, even in moments like these. Even in his convicting moments when we remember the cost of our salvation. Because see, this is where his goodness is at work. This is he's present in these moments to convict us. The enemy is the one who condemns, but it is God when he is present who convicts. And this is his good, uh, goodness, especially here's how the, you really the text ends in 2 Chronicles 5. His goodness is at work when we gather in unity to worship him. You see this here? You see, like, wow, this, this is leading us to, they are, they're remembering what it took to deliver them. They're remembering the cost, and they are gathered around. This isn't like a private thing happening, but the priests and all the congregation of Israel are here. In verse 11, the priests, they come out of the holy place, right? All the priests were present at this moment when they had consecrated themselves. They'd, been, they'd gone through their ritual purifications to, uh, to make themselves uh, ready to, uh, to serve in this regard, but it was with regard to their divisions. So they're all just there. They had divisions in those days. David, particularly, had set up and divided based on like household, whose responsibility it was for what in serving in the, in the tabernacle in those days. And so there's like some, you blow the trumpets, you take care of the candles, you, uh, you know, fold the, the, the cloths, and everybody had different things, like ministry teams and all that. And it's just like, here, they're all there without division. The singers, Asaph, He-Man. Sorry, that's such a great name, right? Somebody, one of y'all pregnant ones need to name one He-Man. <laughs> Jeduthun, their sons, are they're, they're all lined in their best. They have cymbals, harps, lyres. Right? Not like telling falsehood, but a stringed instrument. 120 trumpets. Now, this is loud and lively worship. But all together, singing and playing in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. They are gathered together, all despite distinction, all, uh, this is, you know, it's not chaos, but sure isn't like a somber, quiet occasion, right? God is present, and they're going to be worshipped, and he gets worshipped so much so that they can't even stand, right? That they have to hit the deck because of the cloud, right? It's not, they're not, don't think of this like they're crawling around like it's a fire drill, you know, like you learn, like, fire drill, get down, blow, blow the smoke, smoke rises, no, that's not, are laid low before the glory of God. I mean, we would be amazed if, you know, if a cloud descended in here, fire descended in here. That's what's happening. But even in all the, you know, the singing, all the things that are happening here, make no mistake, worship is about one thing. Adoring God for being God and doing God things. In all of this is the brother. How do they worship Him? For He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. Worship is about one thing: worship, adoring Him, praising Him, thanking God for being God and doing God things. And so, when, you know, when it comes to our expressions of worship and how we adore God, how we exalt Him, how we praise Him and thank Him, what we say matters. Not like, you know, magic words, like a magic spell kind of way, but the lyrics of inspired Scripture teach us this, that we sing to God about God. 
Not even necessarily how I feel about God or anything, but we sing to God about God. That is uh, exaltation. That's why. And why do we do that? Because he's present with us. God, you are so good. And how tragic it is if we are singing things as if he's distant or absent or not uh, amongst us. Like, no, we want to sing to him. He taught us you know, uh, how to worship him in spirit and in truth. John 4, 23 and 24, right? Very clear, very simple. God says, God is spirit. Those who worship me must, 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 not an option, must worship in spirit and in truth, right? Singing true things to God about God because he is present here in us and moving us in a way that is engaging him. And so what we sing matters. How we worship him as we gather together in unity to worship him. So I wonder, you know, just because I don't know why we spend so much time in our weekly service meetings praying and planning the songs we sing here and how we order our worship, right? Because it's, it's, it matters. It's like it's fascinating to me as you read through our Bible, the lyrics that God's people are singing at the significant moments in biblical history. And as we've seen, they keep coming back to this anthem. For he is good, for his love endures forever. They were singing it in 1 Chronicles 16, like we looked at several weeks ago, and, and uh, Psalm 106, Psalm 105, Psalm 90. Like, it's, it's, it's all here. And it's because like, where God is present, His goodness is at work. He is so good to transcend, to come near us, to be manifestly present with us, especially as we worship, especially as we gather on a Lord's Day. We come, yes, because we get to do uh, worship with people that we love, but our motivation, at least it should be, as we come, is because we know God will be here and we want to meet with Him with these people that we love gathered in unity together where our minds are like exploding as we're singing these things and praying these things and coming to God's word together like our minds are exploding with thoughts of his goodness of his holiness of his grace and not just preoccupied with what we have to do later or what we just came out of or how my voice sounds in comparison to the people around me hearts are just overflowing together with thankfulness, with affection for his faithfulness, not overflowing with grumbling because I don't have this or somebody didn't do that. And our voice is just raised with shouts and thanks of praise and service to others and not just stuck in our own indifference. But see, no worship, worship truly together is about God's presence, not our preferences. It's about his glory when we get this right, we experience then his goodness for where his glory is there. His goodness is at, at work. And so thus this, this anthem here, for he is good, for his love endures forever, is our anchor for us in times of trouble, as we have seen uh, already over this. But it is also our exaltation of praise in times of blessing, in times of worship. In these lyrics, his goodness is at the core of our worship. We want his goodness so they're lyrics for every moment of life because we want God in the moments of our life. Whether we're mourning with the barren or excited with the pregnant, whether we're lost, we've just lost our job or we've just had this huge bonus, whether our cars broke down or we're riding in style, whether we're single or married or widowed, whether we're a student or retired or anywhere in between. Church, note this, God is good and does good. Where his glory is, there his goodness is at 
work. May the Spirit give us eyes to see and convince us more deeply that this is true. Pray with me, and then let's sing together. God in heaven, you are good. We tell you that even now, you are so good and do good. so we want to be where you are. We want to be more aware. We want to be uh, in your presence. We want to, that, that's, that's why we're at church this morning. And so thank you, God, that that is just so true, that you have met, you are meeting with us, you're doing work even now as uh, you're, you're, you're sharpening our thoughts and uh, filling our affections with your, your goodness this morning. Help us to see it. Lord, as we just let the gospel cover our lives, as we uh, make worship our primary focus of adoring you for being you and doing new things. How great you are, God. How good you are. That's what we sing tonight. God, so uh, uh, we lift our voices now, singing to you.